is Admire, where today I'm very excited about talking to one of my favorite athletes who has gone on to have an extraordinary career, uh, albeit not a conventional career. My guest was an All-American quarterback who led Syracuse University to an undefeated season, was runner-up in the Heisman Trophy vote. He went on to play professionally in the NFL and CFL and to become a sought-after speaker, feminist, social activist. His new book is entitled You Throw Like a Girl, The Blind Spot of Masculinity. I welcome to the podcast my friend, Don McPherson. Pleasure to be here, Larry. Don, there's a quote that states, we don't choose our careers, they choose us. To the degree that that's true, what was the path that led you to become a football player? And then how did you become a feminist and social activist? You know, there's probably no more true statement about my path, both in football and uh, as, as an activist and educator. You know, I, I was the youngest of, of five kids, youngest of three boys, and I was the last of, of three very good athletes as a kid. And I didn't want to play football. I was scared. I chickened out my first couple of years and uh, and then all of a sudden, I, I, I started playing, and my, my parents didn't even come to my games when I was a kid. And then I started playing quarterback, and all of a sudden, I was good. And, you know, it was always something that I never really expected. And, and as I always say, I, I wasn't a quarterback. I was a black quarterback. And so that was also part of, of my path, uh, where I just wanted to play football. I didn't want to be this social activist and this guy who represented something bigger than just the game. And uh, those things sort of happened by accident. And clearly, the work I do around uh, men's violence against women and masculinity um, is something that I, I never thought that I would be involved with. And uh, I was involved in social programs in college and drunk driving programs and other, uh, those kinds of educational programs that we were asking athletes to do. And I, it was not something that I expected to do. I went to Northeastern University to the Center for the Study of Sport and Society when I retired to work with Richard Lapchick, who was a, a white man doing work around racism and sport. And once again, that was my issue. That was what I came up with, uh, and then I met a guy named Jackson Katz who introduced me to the understanding of, of masculinity and gender and gender-based violence, um, and then it all kind of came full circle to me uh, about my identity and how I was raised and what my values were around being a man and, uh, and having to examine that, and so um, there's no question about it. This, this profession, this career chose me. Uh, it was a very unconventional path, and uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why I do take the perspective that I do around, around a lot of the work that I do. Uh, th- that's very interesting. You know, I'm I'm um I'm I, I call myself sometimes a social anthropologist. I really like to dig into what makes people do what they do and background and environment. You know, your brother, Pastor Miles McPherson, in one of his books, The Third Eye, takes on racism. You take on destructive masculinity, arguably two of the biggest societal blind spots. You both play in the NFL. I see a theme here that includes words like determination, perseverance, fearlessness, and a desire to knock down obstacles. Have you guys explored where this drive originated? You know, I think the third word or, or the third thought that I, that I have when you say those kind of those words uh, is empowerment. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that we both came from, as I said, we were we were a family of five. We have a, a brother who's between us who was a, a boxer who was ranked second in the world as a middleweight fighter. Um, and so we were all three of us were, were professional athletes at the same time, um, or at least in the same time period. And we came from this pragmatic, uh, Jamaican back then it was West Indian family, mm-hmm. uh, of, of very prideful, uh, and very empowered and very empowered to speak our truth and to speak truth to our experiences. And, and I think that that was the thing that we both miles and I, uh, and, and our brother, Mark, um, we're, we're very empowered to live authentically and being young black men, you know, we were all born in the sixties. We're very close in age. 
all born in the 60s and all, all children of the civil rights movement, but in New York. Uh, and so there was a certain amount of, of observing the culture that we were, uh, we were being raised and, and being able to speak truth to it. I think that's the thing that, that, that Miles and I both ex, uh, experienced and, and speak to, I think, uh, very directly, um, using our personal experiences as a narrative for where we are as a country, where we are as men. Um, and I think that's, that's the one thing that we have in common. Um, I, I like the way that you describe it, because um, from the outside looking in, there's a lot of incongruence, but uh, but you pull it all together. I mean, for uh, you, you played for a team called the Ottawa Rough Riders, right? I mean, you know, the, the, it, you know looking out from the outside of it, it doesn't seem like you could you could fit those two together. But uh, but bravo, you have uh, some would say logically and pragmatically you attack gender bias against women as a man. Right. In this lean forward and hashtag me Too era where women are fully engaged, organized, aware and moving forward. How are you and your message accepted by women's organizations? And is there any tension? No, you know, what's really interesting is that uh, my work in the the space of gender based violence and and addressing issues of violence against women predate at least the formal Mm -hmm. me too, because we know me too by Toronto Burke was was formed uh, much longer, much further back than, than we currently understand. But even long before that, um, my work predates Me Too and, and uh, Press Forward and, and all the and, uh, all the different uh, organizations now that, that have sprung up where women's voices are being empowered and, and being highlighted. Uh, I go back to the, the mid-90s, and what's really ironic about sort of that, that notion that, that you know, my voice and my work is, is how it's heard by women, I was actually invited, and this is the way I always describe my work, I was invited into this space of gender-based violence by women and survivors and some men, many men, in fact, mm-hmm. um, who nurtured me and taught me. But I was invited by them into the work to use my privilege and my status as a former athlete, as, you know, this kind of you know public figure in some ways, to talk to other men about dismantling that which gives us privilege and power. And so that's the, that's the narrative and that's, that's the, the perspective that I've come from. It, it is talking about engaging men around issues of sexism and misogyny and homophobia and patriarchy. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's, it's examining all those, all those, those underlying issues that lead to why women are marching, why women are standing up. Right. Right. So it's a, it's a great work, you know, in the book of Tale of Two Cities, it starts out, uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times when we're not in lockdown in our homes, like most of us are, you know, I know you speak do workshops all over the country. So you have a front row seat from my vantage point as a country, we seem pretty divided. Yeah, Black Lives Matters, Blue Lives Matters, Me Too, Make America Great Again. Is this what progress looks like? Absolutely. It, it, you know, progress is messy. It's uncomfortable. You know, I always say to people, if, if you if you want change, change is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's, and I always I always describe that if you're if you're about to go out with your partner and your partner you know comes down and has a, a you know the whole outfit, you know, oh, you need to change. That person's not going to be very happy. Right. But if you say, you know what, you might try a different shirt with that with those slacks. You might try a different you know, a pair of shoes, then, you, then we can change, then we can hear it. And I think what we're experiencing now because of, and I, by the way, I don't think we're as divided uh, as much as, as we have allowed ourselves to believe that we're divided. I travel this country on a regular basis, small towns, big cities, rural, uh, urban areas, and people just want to be heard. Mm. Uh, they want to be respected. Um, and they want to go home at night. You know, they want to go home at night with, with being having, having their little piece of, uh, uh, you know, their piece of silver. And so I, I think that we're not as divided as we, we think we are. 
but people are being heard, and that's uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, going uh, from from the macro to the micro, you know, now we have this COVID-19 pandemic, which has many people in their homes together. There have been many stories in the news about how this is a uh, recipe for wide-scale domestic abuse. Uh, What are your thoughts and what are some ideas on what people can do during this time? Well, I I will say just to to touch on the the last question and how it relates to COVID. Uh, You know, what this moment is teaching us is that all the divisions that that you just mentioned, Black Lives Matter and Make America Great, and all those different ways in which we think we're divided, we are in this together. And, and this, this virus does not care um, if you're a Republican, if you're a liberal, if you're a Democrat. It doesn't care if you're a man or a woman, if you're trans. It does not care. And so we have to realize that it's, it's a wake-up call and a lesson for us. And I, and I think to, to your other point about the vulnerability of people in abusive relationships, and this is a, a really important point for someone like me who uh, I'm, an, I'm a speaker, I'm an educator, I'm you know, sitting in front of, standing in front of audiences and um, I'm talking about some of the bigger issues uh, there are families, there are people who are, who are now have quarantined uh, with their abuser. There are children who are in a child abuse uh, uh, situations that, that are, are now quarantined with their abuser. And so now more than ever, we need to support those agencies and those organizations that are still essential, that are still working mm-hmm. and supporting families and supporting people who are in abusive uh, relationships and are quarantined with their abusers. So it's, it's a really important time to really recognize well, the people that I call angels and warriors who, who do this work every single day, and they are still working and trying to support people who are in very difficult situations. Great, great point. Uh, as an athlete, you spent many days on the field and in the stadium uh, playing the packed stadiums. Uh, right now, some of our professional leagues, um, none of our professional leagues is playing, in fact. And in addition to collectively experiencing sports withdrawal symptoms like I am, We're all trying to do our part to lessen the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. First, how are you coping personally? And secondly, what's your advice to others? Well, I'll tell you that my, my, if I could ask you a question and reverse my advice to others, is not necessarily the advice I gave (laughs) for myself. (laughs) My, My advice for others is to, yes, please, please, please distance. If you are blessed enough to have a home that you can stay in and food that you can put on a, on a table, Stay there. Uh, stay there for the benefit of all those those health workers, all those folks out there that are putting them, their lives at risk to, to keep us all safe. And, and stay home and, and, and distance. And and that's the first thing that I'll say. And, and the second thing is distance, but don't isolate. You know, one of the beauties of this moment is that we have, whether it's social media or any kind of mobile technology, connect with people. Get, get on a Zoom call. Get on a Skype. Get on a, a, a text a text link and, and talk to people, stay connected, uh, know you're not alone. I, you know, we are such a spoiled society that, that three weeks in, in the home and we're complaining about, um, you know, not being connected. Be connected. We have all the technology in the world to be connected. Stay distanced, but but don't isolate. And and I am trying to do some of that, right? But I, I will tell you that the thing that, that uh, keeps me up at night is the reality of, of that this is going to be a lot different. For a lot of people, and as I said a moment ago, I spend my my life on a stage and my life on a plane and on a stage, uh, talking to crowds, and and so um, conveying the messages that I do. And I love to talk to people. I love to get out and, and really understand what a community is like, what a college campus is like, uh, so that I'm a better communicator and it can help people move the conversation in a positive way. And I have to reinvent myself. I have to I have to do more of this, whether it's podcasts or uh, any kind of distance learning. 
Uh, I have to reinvent and I have to learn those things. And uh, it's a challenge. And so I, I, I've spent this time and I, and you know, it's funny because right before we, we jumped on, I was standing uh, sort of in this space that is a, kind of a makeshift office slash uh, dining room. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, I should just change this and move that. Mm-hmm. And, just, and, and so I start looking at projects that kind of stimulate the brain and, and keep me moving. So I, you know, that that's what I've been doing is how do you move forward and sort of reinvent yourself in this new normal? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, less than a, a month and a half ago, I was uh, at a NASCAR event, and then uh, the month b- before that, the Daytona 500. So, you know, uh, around 125, 135,000 people in one stadium, just having a blast, you know, there for my 10th year or so. And uh, now, you know, in the house. And, uh, you yeah. know, very connected. Um, but as I'm working with sports and we're trying to figure out what to do, you know, how to put it together, I'm seeing an interesting juxtaposition. And I wanted to really talk to you about this one. So uh, yesterday we had a really big blow up in, in NASCAR. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've done all this work, you know, and, and I've been on the board of International Speedway Corporation for, for all those years. We've done great work with Drive for Diversity and moving forward in, in the sport. So now people are in their houses driving iRacing. So it's all eSports. And one of the young drivers, you know, Kyle Larson, uses the N-word. Uh, and so, you know, today NASCAR's distanced himself. They've, they've uh, suspended him indefinitely. And, uh, you know, he's losing sponsorship. I think McDonald's, other people were, were his sponsors. You know, this, um, it's very interesting because uh, being at home and being in your, your sweats or your pajamas or uh, among your friends, it actually exposes some things as well. Yeah, you know, it, it's amazing. <laughs> Human behaviors, you talked about being a social anthropologist, to watch the behavior of people online in just a few weeks of, of being distant and, and all of a sudden you see people acting, just acting out mm-hmm. and you wonder, man, it's only been a couple of weeks and, and people are kind of, you know, but the other thing about that, and so it's one thing is to your point is that, is that we start to, to really be exposed for who we really are. And I think the, the, the one thing that I think is really interesting and maybe an exciting moment is, is that social media has always allowed people to hide behind the phone, hide behind the tweet, hide behind the text, and say things that they wouldn't normally say to somebody else to their mm-hmm. face. And so, and those things come out in social media. I think that's that's one of the reasons why you know Twitter has become the, the platform that it has because you can say these really inflammatory things and really set people off. And I think the one thing that it does in a very good way. I get once again, I go back to progress being messy and uncomfortable. Is that now maybe we can have conversations that we wouldn't normally have. I do workshops in, 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 in on college campuses and different corporate settings, and, and, and I'm always, I always say to men, you know, we get bound by our tie, right? We get in the room, we put a tie on, and we think that we're supposed to speak properly, and we're supposed to speak and act with decorum, and we don't say things that are racy, we don't say things that are risque, and that silence is part of why the problem persists. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is a moment where people can sit in their sweat and sit on their phone and have a conversation with people that they work with every day or used to work with every day in close proximity and say how they really feel and, and then really start to work at those things because it, it, as I said before, it, progress is, there's a reason why there's Black Lives Matter and, and, and there's Me Too and there's all, because those things were underlying in our culture and they were cancerous in their silence. And this is what I talk about in my book about the blind spot of masculinity is that if we don't talk as men about those things that we hold close, that we know are issues in our lives, that persists. 
And those things come out in our relationships with other people. And so it's, it's, it's a, maybe a really important moment that we have now to engage people in conversations that we wouldn't normally have if we were sitting in the same room. Excellent. Uh, an excellent point. Um, I, I sort of put this interview together so that at the end we'd have some time to talk about something near and dear to my heart, and I know is yours as well. Uh, you know, we're both Syracuse University alums, and, um, you know, you, you did something special while you were there, a lot of things special, but one thing uh, tremendously special, and that is that you gave us our only undefeated season, um, you know, since the 1959 team. Um, and, uh, you know, I was part, I was on, for 19 years, I was on a, a board of visitors up at Syracuse, and uh, along with Brandon Steiner and David Falk, we uh, instituted the sport management program. Uh, Dave Bing was my mentor. So I'm steeped in Syracuse sports, and I mm. know that, uh, that that you did something really special. Just take us back to there. How special was that? And did you know at the time that you were doing something that that, that, that was that special? You know, it's. It, it was, it was, as I said before, I was a, a black quarterback. That was, that was an issue. Mm-hmm. And so there was that part of my experience that I was acutely aware of. Um, and at the same time, and, and, and at the same time, I was learning the history of Syracuse and, and going back to Ernie Davis and, uh, in the, you know, the, the Heisman Trophy winner in the early 60s. I mean, we had a Heisman, Heisman Trophy winner at Syracuse, a black, excuse me, Heisman Trophy winner at Syracuse before the Southeastern Conference had a black player. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our history and going back to Wilma Sadat saying our history, uh, who was a, a black quarterback in the 1930s in Syri- at Syracuse, our history was steeped in that, in that tradition. And so personally, I felt that. Uh, but then, you know, I, I think like, like any other kind of special season or moment, things come together with a team. And we had a coach, Dick McPherson, who right. um, was an amazing, wonderful human being um, and was being heavily criticized in 1986. People wanted them fired. People wanted them out. And at the same time, you know, I was just talking to one of my old teammates about this the other day, is that the kind of people that Coach Mack recruited, we were all kind of good kids. We weren't, you know, there were a couple of knuckleheads here and there. But for the most part, we were all family-oriented guys. Our families would come up for games. And and that closeness was a part of what that team was. And and I, I say this now in lectures, that we learned to love each other differently. We took a pledge to be alcohol free. And it wasn't just the absence of alcohol that made us better. It was the closeness as people mm-hmm. that um, to this day, we, you know, we, there were a half a dozen of us on a zoom call just the other day uh, talking about, you know, those times. And you know, we are still in many ways, very close. Uh, the guys who were part of that team. And, uh, and we knew kind of early in that season that we had something special. Um, and I think, you know, once you have people who, who believe that they're better <laughs> than they actually are, it's very dangerous. And, and that's, and that's when we were, we were, we were better together, you know, to use the phrase of the day, uh, we were better together. And when we came together as people, um, that part we felt, and, and then it translated into, into wins on the field. You know, you know, we all have, have different, um, you know, not only perspectives, but life experiences. Uh, my mom lives in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, and my nephew um, it was, uh, graduated from Auburn, and um, he's mm. he's a kinesiologist. And uh, you know that Auburn Alabama game is just humongous, and so I always put Syracuse into the mix. And I'm telling you, I sometimes I have to run for my life. Sometimes I just hide in my car. <laughs> but uh, but that uh, that really is something that uh, that historically you don't believe you 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 wouldn't believe what kind of imprint that we put on, uh, on Alabama, you know, with that game. 
You, you know, what's funny is I, I'm friends with a, a few guys from that, that Auburn team and, and that I see from time to time and, or I'll, I'll run into a guy and, and, you know, even to a player, they were as equally as embarrassed going for the tie as, as we were angry. Right. Um, you know, the players really wanted to, you know, it was Pat Dye saving face, uh, but the players wanted to go for the win. Players go on the field, you want to win. And mm-hmm. so, uh, it, it's funny that you, you're exactly right. Every time I see people from Auburn, I bring up that game and I bring up Syracuse, and uh, and they cringe because they, they remember what it was all about. Yeah, um, interestingly enough, talking to uh, to Dick Vitale, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, he was talking about the specialness of the Big East. And I know when I go to uh, NBA All Star games or whenever I'm around a lot of Big East guys from that era, um, it's just one big family at this point. Didn't matter what school you went to. Uh, everybody realizes how special the Big East was during that era. Yeah, and it, it was, you know, if people don't remember the Big East, was, you know, it started almost like a, as a Northeast Catholic, or not Catholic, but, but, but the, 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 the religious school, Seton Hall, St. John's. And uh, and so um, that that was that was the, the, the origination of the Big East. And, and you're right, there was no, that was the, the epicenter of high school basketball back in those days. And, and um, it was all the high school kids who played against each other in high school and now playing against each other in college. And it was the, the, the traditions and the history of, of that league was, and I was blessed. I was, I was, you know, part of that, you know, I came up in, in, in that generation. Uh, in fact, I was just joking with a, with a guy, Gene Waldron, uh, Eugene Waldron played at Syracuse. Um, someone posted the, the, the game against five slammer jam against Houston. Right. That was my, re- my recruiting trip. And it was like Houston come up to the Northeast. With you know, with five slam pajama and, and Syracuse beat them in the carry dome. That was my recruiting trip, and and that was just like, wow, this is college basketball. It was just, and no one will ever forget. You know those games in the dome with Seca and, and Rally Massimino, <laughs> and, and I mean those were just the greatest, the greatest games. And, and Thompson, and, and, and uh, of course Beheim, and, and, and you know the, all those great coaches. That whole class was a really exciting time to be a kid and love the college sports. That's great. Look, uh, thank you for taking time to talk to me. Um, thanks for your wisdom and insights. Um, we, we, we unpacked a lot here that I think that the listeners will, will really enjoy. Uh, any parting thoughts for our listeners? You know, I say, I say it again, um, you know, we'll, we'll be back and, and, and this will all, you know, this, this period of COVID, I, I think is a time that we, we should, we need to come together. We need to have those important conversations about how we care for each other. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Right. And so, uh, your book is, uh, uh, you throw like a girl, blind spot of masculinity. It's available everywhere. Yes, it is. Excellent. And this is the Admire Podcast, where you can pick up on uh, iTunes, uh, uh, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.